when when we met, we had well, I had a particular kind of experience, mm. which was walking into the room, and th- this was a um, a meeting of a secret magical order, wasn't it? It was an international yeah. secret magical order. Yeah, and when I walked in the room, and then I saw you sat there, mm. I had the distinct impression that I already knew you. And there was, mm. from the very beginning, a sense that we wanted to do something together. We weren't quite sure what it was. I think it was more just we knew we were doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, now, that, that magical order was a chaos magic order. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what inspired us to do what we were doing with the chaos magic guys was something else, wasn't it? Mm. Other than the stated aims and objectives of of chaos magic. Yeah. That's what I would have said. And that we went on a journey together discovering what that thing is. Yeah. And that the the idea of re-injecting spirituality or the great work back into chaos magic Mm. was more a a putting into words of something that we found ourselves already doing. Right. And we just happened to be doing it in that circumstance. Mm. And I think we were doing it in that circumstance because the particular magical order that we're talking about, I think, is where a particular kind of magical current moved to. Mm-hmm. And it was, after all, the the mentor that I had in that magical order who encouraged me to do what would be considered uh, Thalamic magic, mm. which was the invocation of the Holy Guardian Angel. Mm. That was where it all kicked off, wasn't it? Your mentor suggested a task to contact the Holy Guardian Angel, but presumably mm. in a chaos magic style. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the contradictions, isn't it? That although I was familiar with the Holy Guardian Angel from spending years reading Crowley, um, I was familiar with all of that. But by the time I met you, uh, I was more principally concerned with practical magic and the acquisition of magical power, if we put it that way. But the redirection back to something more traditional came from someone who was a key player in the chaos magic movement, which is interesting, isn't it? Because you wouldn't expect that. No. As soon as you started on that work, I thought, I want a piece of that. (laughs) Yeah. And then all sorts of synchronicities started to kick off. At the time, I came across Daniel Ingram's work, and that was where a big chunk of stuff fell into place for me, like reading Crowley's Lieber Samech and... You know, he's talking about the Holy Guardian Angel, you know, deserting you and going across the abyss and then reading in Daniel Ingram about the dark night of the soul and suddenly it becoming apparent that those two things linked up. They were the same thing. And we kept finding that pattern coming up in all sorts of places, like the Xenox herding pictures. I remember that was uh, another discovery, that same pattern. Mm. And But they were all different ways, weren't they, of describing something that was unfolding for us? Uh, mm. that that we were experiencing together. Yeah. All sorts of silly little influences came together. Like I remember listening to a podcast at the time. It's like one of the early podcasts called the Viking Youth Power Hour. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was just a load of guys getting drunk and waffling on about strange topics. Shouting. Yeah. Shouting a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I remember just one of the comments one of them made was... Um, there's a whole lot of shit coming down in 2012. You need to get enlightened. And for some reason, that <laughs> yeah. stayed with me. And I was thinking, that sounds like a good idea. Mm. And that was also another instigation. The reason why I got into magic was 
because of experiences I'd had with the Ouija board when I was a kid and I couldn't shake them off. I knew reality yeah. wasn't wasn't the way that the mainstream presents it to us. That's why I was there. And I think those sorts of yearnings are the beginning of the awakening process. I mean, th- there were some things that you said back in those days that blew my nut as well. <laughs> Just little comments that you made that kind of stayed with me. I mean, I remember once you saying, um, oh, Alan Chapman, he's a bit of a myth. He doesn't really exist. I said that, didn't I? Yeah, and I remember thinking, did I? thinking what, what, what does he mean by that? And then I remember us having a conversation once and we were talking about transhuman states of consciousness and and I was saying to you, well, we can't ever experience those precisely because they're beyond human. And I remember you turned around to me and said, ah, but we can experience them because we have a spark of the divine in us. We have a spark of something that's not human. And that was the first time I'd ever come across that idea. So I think you were onto something like right from the very beginning. Mm. So for me, a big turnabout happened with beginning that that work with the Holy Guardian Angel Mm. in the sense of my outward understanding of what it is that I was engaged in. Because I ended up in that magical group, uh, meeting you, kind of as a byproduct of of attempting to do something else with my life. So I ended up moving to London from the north of England uh, under the pretense of doing something with music. Yeah. Right, because every other avenue that I might have wanted to have pursued when I was younger was blocked off. It was like being held in place and aimed in a certain direction. The only way that I could get away from the situation that I found myself in, which was very restrictive, was this pretense of becoming successful as a musician. And an avenue opened up to move to London to do that. Now, the entire time that I was in, in the north of England, like so from my childhood through my teenage years, was spent being gro- <laughs> groomed for adoption by the wickedest man in the world. <laughs> Alistair Crowley. I remember him, he came for me in the playground when I was nine. I've told you this story, haven't I? No. Okay. So I went to a Church of England school and I remember learning about Christ literally being God as a human and thinking, that sounds attractive. What would that be like, being able to understand the fundamental nature of everything and also being a human being? Uh, but then quickly I learned that Christ was the only child of God or son of God. And that to me instinctually felt wrong, mm-hmm. felt incorrect. But then I heard stories of saints and then it's like, well, saints sound pretty close to being like Christ. Maybe I could be a saint. Uh, but then, then you learn that saints existed a long time ago. They don't exist anymore. Miracles don't exist anymore. And uh, around about this time, a boy down the street got a computer game and he got a free novel with the computer game. Mm-hmm. And because I was literally the only person he knew who could read books or enjoyed reading books, he gave me this book. And it was a, a fantasy novel about a, a, a magician. Right. Anyway, he, he was a twin. I'm a twin. And there were lots of other characteristics that this fantasy magician had that I strongly identified with. And in this story, he has magical powers beyond his age. But the reason for that is because the evilest black magician that ever lived in the past, right, who died, was uh, lending him his power whilst he was trying to take over his body, mm-hmm. right? So th- this is a curious preamble to me having a book of ghost stories in the playground when I was nine and flicking through it. And there were silly stories, silly ghost stories, until I got to like the, the middle part of the book. And there was a picture of Crowley's face with a black snake wrapped around it. <sighs> And it said, like, the evilest black magician that ever lived. And it gave descriptions of, uh, you know, the silly tabloid stories about him, like sacrificing children and torturing animals and whatever. And I was appalled at the story, and I was thinking, how could any human being do any of those things? But I was it was the first time I'd came across anything that suggested magic was actually real, mm-hmm. which sounded like the same thing 
that Christ was involved in <laughs> and the saints. Wow, it's actually, there are some adults who believe this to be a real thing. It's not just a fantasy story. And I was both terrified and excited at the thought that the evilest black magician that ever lived might try to take over my body. Right. In this life. <laughs> now, the parallels with that story, they continue. So, like this, the, you know, our fantasy magician, he goes on to try and find this spell book that belonged to this evil magician in the past, whatever, you know, because it had the most powerful spells in it. Well, like when I was like 15, I went I went and found Crowley's Magic and Theory and Practice in a, one of those um, outlet bookshops. And and from that point forward, so I, was, so I was about 15, I worked filling bags with soil and manure. My first job literally was shoveling shit. And uh, I would go to, the uh, weekends, I would go to New Aeon Books in Manchester and buy everything I could find on Crowley. But bizarrely, and I've heard this story from other people as well, my local library, this is in Oldham, had a really great selection of Crowley books. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know why. I don't know who was requesting the library be stocked with those things, but it was... Yeah, it was pretty good. Anyway, I ended up dropping out of education and living in a dive in a, in a rented room illegally mm-hmm. in someone's council flat <laughs> by the time I was 16. And all I did was spend about two or three years reading everything by Crowley, working out his methods, practicing magic. So it was like being held in place uh, with just one direction that I could go in. And eventually, I mean, I also took up playing guitar and stuff like that. So then there was this avenue of perhaps moving to London to do something with music. So I moved to London, try and become a rock star or whatever. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I just thought, oh, I'll join this magical order. And uh, there you were. Mm. Yeah. Why chaos magic? Why not the OTO? I worked out some techniques from Crowley's uh, veiled instructions for doing magic. I experienced all kinds of things. Like um, I saw some UFOs. I had a, a demon visit me in the middle of the night. You know, engineering synchronicities, all of that stuff. I experienced you know, the Kundalini stuff when I was like 16 or whatever. Mm. Uh, all, all kinds of stuff experimented with Crawler's instructions, but I still felt that there was something, there was something missing. Or rather, there might be a more, a more practical approach that was, that was more effective, something like that. So I did a specific act of magic to find a more effective form of magic. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the next day I discovered chaos magic. Yeah, so it, it gave a more practical, streamlined approach to the practice at the cost of a lot of other stuff. But at the time, that was fine because my interest was in was in honing technique. Mm. Yeah, so that that's why I ended up following chaos magic. And you know, the idea of an environment engineered specifically for cultivating uh, effectiveness in magic, which is essentially what this order was, mm-hmm. you know, was very appealing. It's like the, you're going to find genuine real magicians there uh, that I could, you know, that I could learn from. Mm. Now, of course, the reality of things can be very different from what your expectations might be. But broadly speaking. My encounters with other magical organizations that aren't explicitly practical, like the OTO and so on, Mm -hmm. they tend to be naive and banal when it comes to their magical practice. You know, it takes a long time for them to do the basics, Mm. you know, when you could just be getting on with it. Mm. Do you know what I mean by that? Absolutely. I mean, that's (laughs) pretty much all we did when we were doing chaos magic. We just did stuff, you know, a chaos magic meeting. You just pitch in there and you do rituals and that's mm. it that's all yeah. that you do and yeah. uh, it's also it's very eclectic as well isn't it in yeah. terms of the crowd that it that it that it draws so you, you can have a stereotype of what a chaos magician looks like but in experience in that order it was very diverse mm. i've noticed that magicians these days you know the young ones <laughs> <laughs> there's a real aversion to doing stuff in groups there's a real suspicion of groups you know, mm. that that people are going to be abused, they're going to meet fascists or not nice people. Yeah. And whilst 
I don't think that is necessarily untrue. I do think that there's a lot to be gained by joining groups and seeing mm. people and, you know, even things that you don't agree with, even things that you wouldn't contemplate doing yourself. You know, there's such a lot to be gained there. I'm seeing again and again online people recommending that magicians don't join groups, that they practice alone. Mm. And that seems to be what the majority of people are doing these days. I think that's a real shame. Yeah, I think that extends, though, across uh, many different um, vectors in society. Mm, Yeah, and it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to understand why that's come about, because what could be more abusive, what could be more objectionable... (laughs) than the place where you work. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, well, this is why so many, so many people work at home. Yeah. On their own, yeah. you know, with a, with a screen. Do you, do you remember uh, in 2008, there was an event called The Colours of Chaos? I do. And um, I remember doing a talk. Mm. It was at the Conway Hall, wasn't it, in London? Right, yeah. yeah. And I did this talk about how the great work had been forgotten, and it was an integral part of, of magic and the most part chaos magicians were uh, relating to reality in the worst possible way as um, something to merely extract value from and I'm pretty sure I called them narcissists as well there was something in there anyway mm. and I thought I'll deliver this talk and there will be you know objections or pushback or there'll be some kind of you know debate or something like that and everyone just clapped they all just clapped they were like yeah it was a great talk literally nothing changed yeah. and it was it was just like radical acceptance yeah. of, of whatever <laughs> No, I remember it well. You you stood there and you told them that they were all narcissists and useless, and people stood up and <laughs> well, cheered. That wasn't that bad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I th- when I think back to that group and the people involved and the stuff we got up to, I can't imagine it, it it happening now. You know, rubbing up against points of view that you don't agree with, hmm. coming from friends where the friendship is or the shared experience is more important than the disagreement, yeah. something like that, yeah. right? It seems to have switched. Yeah. Seems to have changed. And, you know, I mean, some of the stuff that people used to come out with, yeah, I can't imagine it happening now, which is is a shame. The way that people change their minds is through shared experience with someone who who has a different opinion mm. and they and they come to see they come to change their minds as a result of that experience uh, and usually usually as a result of making fun of each other that that that's usually an element that's in there yeah <laughs> there's a very prevalent idea now that if you're in contact or friends with somebody who has an objectionable opinion then that's your opinion too yeah and it's difficult because you do get people with objectionable opinions in magical orders. You mm. you can more or less guarantee that you will meet people with extreme opinions about things. Mm. And I think it's the case that magic does not tend to attract well-adjusted people with mainstream <laughs> opinions, does it? No, no. No, well, it's been my experience over time that all opinions yeah, mm. are objectionable. Mm. And that the 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 thing that we found ourselves sharing in when we met, right, and then what we endeavoured to put into words with the Baptist head, right, and the, and the various different practices that we explored, that trajectory and that concern is necessarily in opposition to any generalised opinion or, or ideology or, or set of beliefs, mm. by definition. Uh, it, it can be the case that you, you can be interested in the great work, what we might call the great work, right, which is following this thread that comes first, Right, that draws us up and, and draws us through these stages that we ended up describing. Yeah, you know, using the language of different traditions, 
it's an expression of us being focused on something in particular, mm-hmm. something singular, mm-hmm. right? And it's something that if you follow or you can trust it in the way that we did, because right? it was like an adventure, wasn't it? It was like, let's see what, what comes along next. Yeah. And we can't even, we're attempting to put it into words, what it is that we're following or what it is that we're aimed at. And that's continually being refined, isn't it? As our as our experience and our vision of, or our, our most profound conception of the, the total nature of things was was evolving mm-hmm. or being cultivated. Nevertheless, even though we couldn't exactly put it into words, it was like a, a target or a or an aim that was just over the horizon mm. of our profoundest conception. To follow that thread means to be one pointed or devoted in that direction mm-hmm. and and anything else can appear as a candidate for what it is that we're looking for but which eventually over time you exhaust mm-hmm. and it's even the case you start off with a multiplicity of candidates that you think actually mutually support each other mm-hmm. but as time goes on they, they fall away one by one yeah until eventually you could say it's one thing so in the in the beginning you can do things like uh, and, and people should be suspicious of this <laughs> Right. When it turns out that your spiritual experience happens to dovetail exactly with your already existing political opinions, as if your political ex- opinions are an expression of that. It can be like that because your discernment has yet to be cultivated to the point that, that you can see that one of those things is an imposter. Mm. It looks it looks like it, it's similar or it might even look like it's the same. And sometimes we can end up pursuing something that we think looks similar in place of the thing that actually matters mm, mm. and thereby we we murder it or we don't we don't we stop following that thread i think maybe we should try and give some concrete examples from that i mean one that comes to my mm. mind the idea that what you're looking for is something that will take away all your pain and suffering you know that's such a common one mm. that people are pursuing some sort of state that's going to make all their problems go away yeah, and people will think that they're failing or they're going wrong if they're not consistently cultivating something that produces that. Mm. I mean, the problem is things get worse, don't they? Yeah. If you're doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, the thing I was talking about with the angel, you know, it's the crassest way of thinking about it. It was to invoke my future magical self, so I could have the magical power that I would have cultivated by the time I was fifty, say, when I was in my twenties. It's like a shortcut. <laughs> it's so ridiculous now to think about it. But you're, invo- you're invoking your future magical self. I can't think of a grosser way of thinking about it. But with success, there's an inversion in, in your experience of how reality lays itself out. Mm-hmm. And the delusion that you're at the top is, uh, is popped, isn't it? Mm-hmm. When you find yourself being dragged towards an abyss, which you're then abandoned to cross alone. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, is this what I... I didn't know I was signing up for this. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Concrete examples of things that you end up mistaking for the, for the real thing. Morality. Morality is probably another one, isn't it? Well, the idea that acting in a certain way is going to bring about the thing. (laughs) That there will be some sort of reward. What I've discovered working with students over the last 10 years is that after a particular stage of awakening, the preoccupation shifts to morality or ethics or how to Mm. behave in the world. Mm. Mm. Principally is a concern around how your behavior matches the realization that you've had yeah you know generally speaking i talked about how you can have all these different candidates for what we might call the beloved or or that which we love more than anything else that we're looking for and we find ourselves obsessed with it and it drives our um, our experience right even though we can't put into words what it is but you can start off with this multitude of candidates yeah so as an example, I, I thought my musical career would give me what I was looking for, 
right? and I put a burden on its shoulders that it couldn't possibly carry. Mm. It couldn't provide me with what it what it is that I was looking for, and it was only once I'd had a particular realization that this particular exist- false existential view I had of things had dropped away, mm. and, and I was liberated from that, that I realized that I'd placed that burden on music, and that there's no way that that could have delivered that for me. Mm. So a sense of fundamental fulfillment Right. So we so we have these different candidates where we're looking for this this sense of fulfilment, but ultimately there's only one thing that can do that. Yeah, that's an inheritance that isn't found in this conditional world. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Some difficult things come out of this. If there's a magical community, if mm. there's something that unites magicians, it's not anything in this world. No, it's not your politics. It's not your morality, your outlook on life. It's none of that. So if there's going to be a magical community, it's going to be a load of people with all sorts of disagreements between them. And those, the horrendous truth is, don't matter. And well, yeah. there is a way of looking at that mm. that is unacceptable, that's unbearable. Mm. The fact that you're with somebody who has such objectionable views, who may have a really screwed up idea of what's best for people from your perspective that you have something in common with them is deeply difficult to deal with it is but do you not think it's strange that there are now it now seems normal that there are people with very objectionable views i don't i don't know what that means mm. <laughs> i mean i've known <laughs> lots of people with lots of different views from every uh, corner of the political spectrum yeah right you know any kind of political literacy most of the things that are described with various different labels and not the thing that they're claiming it to be. Mm. But leaving that aside, it's like, where are these people? I don't know anyone like that. It's very curious now that we we live in a culture where apparently everyone has objectionable views of some description. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Do you know? What th- I find that very odd. It wasn't like that in the nineties or two thousands. Mm. Like you might say, oh, someone over here has, uh, you know, this friend of mine. He's got this crazy theory about this. Mm. Or, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. something like that. You know. Yeah, well, I think another thing that has come in is the idea that disagreement is an existential threat. So if someone doesn't entertain the same view of the world as someone else, then that poses an existential threat to the person that they don't agree with. You know, you're denying my reality, you're denying my experience, you're denying a world in which I can exist as, a, as an equal being. Mm. It also seems weird that you're supposed to disagree. Or, or what I mean by that is, it used to be the case someone could just say something mm. and you'd think, that's a weird opinion. Or um, mm. how can you be that narrow-minded? Or how did someone arrive at that conclusion? But you don't say anything. Because mm. why does it matter? Why does it matter? Yeah. Well, Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, a, like a social space where things occurred, mm. but what was more important was the sharing together yeah. in, in the experience. Well, I think the view that would be taken was if someone disagrees with you and you're like, well, that's a weird view, oh well, carry on, mm. then you're privileged. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't pose an existential threat to you. Mm. Speaking of a magical order, though, you know, you have a group of people coming together, right? If you're pursuing that thread that we talked about in the way that we were, mm. the reason why you end up realising that it's in opposition to ultimately every form of ideology or opinion or even preference is because it necessitates turning inward concerning yourself with your opinions and beliefs Mm -hmm. with the first move being the suspicion that you are deluded (laughs) right you don't actually know what the truth might be about things and maybe at some point you come to terms with the fact that you don't even know what is best for yourself even your best formulated plans you know, as a, as a result of considering who you think you are and who you would like to be, just aren't going to do it. 
No. You know, they're not going to deliver what they promise. So genuine magical practice, it ends up turning the responsibility around on yourself because, of course, no one else can do the magical practice for you, mm. right? You start with, with the suspicion, just the suspicion, that maybe you don't understand everything. I'm just going to hold off on concerning myself with others and, and wishing to control how they behave, right? You, you turn to yourself because you can't control other people. No. Can you? So the responsibility, the choice becomes yours to follow this thread when you do that. It's a complete inversion of the usual cultural dynamic. Yeah. You know, yeah. at the moment, you're supposed to concern yourself with everyone else except yourself. Yeah. In any meaningful way, you know. I think that really is something missing from magical discourse. What I do on my podcast is I talk about personal experience. Mm. And it seems to me that very, very few people are doing that on the magical scene. The general discussion is always about what other people are doing. And I've noticed even when mm. you ask people directly to talk about their experience, you yeah. know, what they've done and what the mm. results have been, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they still don't seem able to do it. There's a reason for that. The thread that we've been talking about right, leads somewhere that will necessarily present itself as somewhere deep and dark, somewhere where you don't want to go somewhere where there's eventually there'll be a confrontation with death itself mm. now whether you can be conscious of that or not that sense can be there and so you get this phenomenon of communities of people who talk at length about the subject that mm. concerns itself with going in that direction precisely as a way to keep the reality of it as far away from themselves as possible mm. and what that requires is replacing the real living tradition with something that looks like it so when we were talking before about possible candidates, things that look like it, the, the most banal version of that, and it has to be banal, so it makes sure that there's no chance you'll take responsibility for anything. It's your pre-existing uh, political position, mm -hmm. right? So most of occultism is basically uh, what passes for left-wing politics now in a, in a witch's outfit with substitutes for the practice in the form of things like, you know, questionable academic approaches to ideas within magical discourse. You know, like the historicity of ideas. Yeah. Like the great work becomes an idea passed down through generations that can be interesting and that you can, you know, read a study on or something like that. But a way to appear knowledgeable about the subject without ever having to take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah, so that's why most of occultism now is made up of gatekeepers to institutional power mm. and and it means ascribing to a particular ideology right and it's nothing it's got nothing to do with the great work no now the other thing about the great work is that you can um also make the mistake that you need to defend it from what we might call imposters to the tradition mm. something mm. like that right how do you defend the actual work from taking place without it being sabotaged but that's also a mistake because as a an imposter or a candidate for the great work one that looks really close to it is defending the great work right. or, prote or protecting it yeah. or, um, you know, fighting back against whatever. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or like, you know, how do we bring some, um, some reality back into the situation? Sounds similar, but it's not the same thing. One of the principles of the tradition is to grow what you care about, right? Not to, not to try and fight with shadows. In other words, the great work isn't some kind of, you know, retreating into a cave somewhere and not engaging with the wider world. Rather, if you're engaged in the great work, it means cultivating something here that wouldn't be here otherwise, that acts as a lamp for people who will, who want to follow this thread, who are looking for the real thing. Yeah. When it appears, the darker it is, the better, because now you can see it from further away. 
that's what a magical order should function as. Yeah. Right? So you, you don't even have to concern yourself with the nature of the, yeah, you know, yeah. occultism. Yeah. No, I've seen that in action. Like mm. that international secret magical order that we spoke about. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you know, I stayed around there longer than you did. Mm. And there was a real concern that it should should continue, you know, that it must mm. carry on in the form that it was. To the extent that, you know, it started to feel more like a kind of social network, you know, like people from outside the organisation mm. were allowed to participate. In. And I never did understand that. <laughs> I was like, it doesn't matter if it dies out. It doesn't matter if mm. there's just three of us sitting around a table. The great work will always be there. It'll always take different forms. Well, I remember that the mentor that we mentioned, uh, I would just innocently ask sometimes, like, how many people are attending this meetup or something like that? And he would always just say, it's not about quantity, it's about quality. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I think that principle um, got washed away over the years. If you remember, he had a particular magical staff mm. called Big Finger. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. When that stick broke... That was the end. Yeah, and that broke quite some years ago, didn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. I, I I consider him to be the last head of of that particular order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wider the net was thrown, the less and less <laughs> the organisation seemed to remain true to its nature. You know, the way it was when we joined. Mm. Well, you know, I I remember when I was younger, there were, before the counterculture was mainstream, mm-hmm. right? There was there was lots of stuff, you know, chaos magic uh, or magic in general, lots of other things. Where on the one hand, it's nice to sometimes it's nice to keep something to yourself, isn't it? And you're glad it's not mainstream because it's, you know, it's something intimate or something personal. Yeah. On the other hand, though, you can have this desire that it be it, the culture would be so much better if it was mainstream. But what you can fail to appreciate, and this is what I've come to see over the decades. Is it for anything to go mainstream, apart from in very, very rare instances, and even then, it tends not to be successful so it doesn't happen again, uh, it has to become banal. It, it has to become how we were just describing um, occultism as a culture in general. Mm. It, it appeals to the lowest common denominator. Mm. It has to be that way, so that the original treasure right, becomes debased You know, as a result of that. I, I think that's an inescapable dynamic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And maybe also the flip side of that is the way things are in occult discourse at the moment, like on Twitter. I'm starting to get a sense that conversations in private are starting to happen. Conversations behind the scene. Yeah. People who want to get away from this divisiveness that's based upon opinion rather than upon the great work. And it's almost Mm. like... You know, you can see this dynamic where the the occult is starting to go occult again <laughs> from itself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know why people don't understand that if you're going to be punished for doing something, then you do the thing when that person isn't there, yeah, <laughs> or behind their backs, or yeah. But like I said before, uh, the trajectory of following the great work is that less and less you'll concern yourself with that which isn't the great work. Mm. You know, as you realise it's either an imposter moving in the opposite direction because it looks similar or looks like it's, uh, you know, somehow a part of it. Mm. Or that you that you just see through it, yeah. you know. It's basically a constant process of self-doubt and disillusionment, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, thinking yeah. back to those days when we, when we first embarked upon this, there really was a, a drive, a motivation, 
we really went for it, didn't we? I mean, I remember doing hours and hours of practice every day, getting up at five in the morning and and doing yoga and hours of meditation and mantras and constant mindfulness and and not thinking really of anything else for months and months. Mm. I mean, I would I would agree my focus was similar, mm. but I didn't uh, do that much work. No. You didn't. I mean, I did. I worked every day, but you know. But I mean, that comes down to a technical question between quantity and quality. Yeah, and I think it also comes down to personality as well. I mean, some people mm. like to have a practice that consists of certain things, mm. but you don't have to do that. And I mean, I think that was more the approach that you took, and I was more to have something a bit more structured. Mm. But yeah, it was patently obvious that it's not necessary to do that. I was getting results. You were getting results. Yeah, so we finished The Baptist Head. Its final form was a trilogy of books. Mm. And that ended, was that 2009? Yeah, 2009, 2010, around then. Yeah. And we went our separate ways. Yeah, you went to live in Wales. I did. Have a family. Yeah. Teach. Mm. See, what happened with the combination of The Baptist Head was what I alluded to earlier, which was there was a certain stage of realisation, and then it became about, instead of looking for how to come to realisation or awakening, it became about tradition, relationship, morals, Mm. institutional form of something, how it's expressed, that kind of a thing. So as was predicted in some of the magical workings that we did, uh, my preoccupation with magic, or or at least that way of describing it that had come before, fell away, and then I spent the next... 10 years cultivating an appropriate expression of it mm. that, that made sense which culminated in uh, in the book Magia mm. 20, was that 2019? something like that, yes and then and in that 10 years I uh, um, worked on what you might call cultivating my garden <laughs> mm. which is working with students and taking them through the same process of realisation yeah yeah. Earlier I was talking about one of the pitfalls being thinking that following some sort of morality will lead to awakening, mm. which is not the case. It's it's almost like awakening happens and then there's a question of how do you mm. express that. But that too is a delusion. Is it? That must be why I found it so hard then. <laughs> yes, it doesn't lead anywhere. So there is no line in the sand in the way that you think there is. That doesn't mean awakening means you could be amoral. <laughs> When you're when you're preoccupied with morality, mm. inescapably what you're trying to do is make up for an absence of a morality that has a different source. So it's like it has to come from you. It has to come from humans. It has to come from some human institution. It has to come from your actions. It has to come from your practice. Something like that. When that delusion is seen through, which is the next stage of realization, there's no line in the sand. But another way of putting that is the divine relationship between what it means to be a human being and this inherited nature that you realized was never absent in the first place. Mm-hmm. The natural expression of your own nature is itself moral. Mm-hmm. All of our best moral strategies and theories and philosophies and ways of being are a mere parody of the, the morality of that nature inherent to itself. Mm. It's like the with the with the first realization, you're constantly seeking for ways of understanding. Yeah, you know, if you arrange conditions just right, maybe a realization will happen. Yeah, and the and the realization is the awakening is all of those tactics were a parody to try and make up for an absence that was never there in the first place. Yeah. So you have the realization, and it turns out that a nature that knows itself, which is by definition miraculous, doesn't require or depend upon anything else to know itself. Mm-hmm. It was always the case. All it took was for you to give up the pretense of trying to make up for that absence. Mm. Then you see the truth. 
and it repeats itself morality. Then after that, it repeats itself again for being, yeah, being a non-being, and so on. What you've described seems to me to be doing something interesting with the notion of evil. So generally, in our approach to morality, we're trying to avoid evil or to negate it or eradicate it in some way. What I'm getting is a sense that what you're describing there is something different from that. Well, it's like what I described earlier, where you cultivate what you care about mm. versus shadow boxing, mm. fighting with an absence. Yeah. Right. So if you put anything in negative terms, that sounds like, doesn't it, the thing you care about? If you said you wanted to wake up and I said, right, so you get rid of your delusion, don't have delusion, sounds the same, but they're actually opposites. Mm. Never concern yourself with delusion. Yeah, and it sounds like what you're saying there is you fall into the same trap if you think morality is about avoiding evil or negating evil. Yeah, don't concern yourself with evil. Yeah. Concern yourself with good. Yeah. What's good. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and then you cultivate and grow that in the world. Yeah. Sounds dumb to say it, but that literally makes the world better. Yeah, yeah. There's there's more good in it. Whereas a lot of what passes, Mm. especially these days in contemporary Mm. discourse about being moral, is Mm. not doing this, not doing that. Look at that over there. That's bad. Mm. Mm -hmm. These are all practical strategies that are trying to make up for an absence that isn't there. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that what we would want to do is have a time where that never existed, because that would be to fundamentally misunderstand the nature of reality. Mm. To play out these parodies that we're talking about, to draw false conclusions, these are all a part of creation. They're all a part of a cosmology. Mm. Right? They're, they're a fact of it. Now, we want to, through this process, liberate ourselves from these cases of mistaken identity, such that we can recover the identity that we lost, and we do that here in this world. Mm. But we're never going to get rid of those those essential features. They have to be there, otherwise how could we cultivate what we're cultivating here? Yeah. You know what I mean? When we wake up, we wake up here, don't we? Yeah. It's not anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, there's a reason for that. So regaining that lost identity, whereas a lot of what we hear about these days is occupying the identities that we've been given. You know, you mentioned earlier what passes as leftist discourse is stuff around identity, isn't it? Yeah. What I've discovered with students, you might start off with a number of labels of how you might understand yourself. Mm. But you're going to end up just being a person. Mm. I've seen that time and time again, where people with what we would call protected identities now, after a while they realise that they're not in that particular drama in the way that previous appearances would have led them to have believed. Mm. I'm trying to be um, precise and careful with my language. So not in that drama in the way that they they first believe that they were. Yeah. Now, that's actually true for every false identity. doesn't matter who you are, that's what you start off with. It's true for the entire process. Some dramas, right? I mean, this is the nature of drama or, or a false identity, want to convince you that they're more important than others mm. within yourself, but it turns out they're not. Mm. You just end up being a person. That can sound as simple or as uh, sophisticated as you like, because what is a person? Exactly, yeah. What is a human being? Yeah. As you told me all those years ago, a person is something that has a spark of the divine in it. Yeah, but that's a potential, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how many examples do we have throughout history of what it would mean to be fully a human being? You know, what we might call an adult human being. Mm. Do we even culturally recognize what a human being could be? You know, what the promise is? Now, the answer to that is no. We're out of our depth with everything. Mm. It's, not, it's tragic how out of our depth we are when it comes to understanding the nature of the mind the nature of culture, the nature of the world. But that's another way of understanding what we've been calling the great work. Mm. 
It's manifesting what a human being could actually be, what they, what we're supposed to be. You were talking about how after the Baptist had finished, you became a teacher. Yeah, I was invited to teach. So what I mean by that is someone approached me off the back of the Baptist head material. He was a guy um, who, he was a Westerner, who'd, he'd moved to Japan. He'd lived in a monastery, been a Zen priest for, I think it was 13 years, something like that. And he'd yet to realise the promise of that tradition, you know, Kensho or realisation or whatever. And he asked me if I'd teach him. And I said, yeah, that's how it started. It wasn't like I was in, I intentionally set out to teach, but I'd had a realisation. I thought, right, now I'll go and teach people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think initially I tried to maybe follow in your footsteps, but it didn't really suit me. I mean, I remember teaching meditation at a local Buddhist mm. centre, which was just, just crazy. <laughs> no, Nobody wanted to sit and meditate, basically. I just found it really frustrating. I used to do this evening class, which was the class where, you know, you'd just come, you'd sit for an hour, talk about mm. it, and then go. Nobody wanted to do that. And I was thinking, oh, I don't think this is for me. And though I've often done stuff in a Buddhist tradition, I've never really identified as a Buddhist. It used to seem to me like we were engaged in an exercise with the Baptist head mm. and the wider practical Dharma community that you might call syncretic or something like that. Or comparative mm. you know like we were looking at different traditions to see how they would match with each other based on our own experience and, and exploring it in that way almost in lieu of uh, uh, just a bona fide tradition you know that had been preserved and was specifically about awakening you know and then we wouldn't need to do what it is that we were doing yeah but i think that's not the way the the thread that we've been describing works mm-hmm because it's a lineage that doesn't belong to this world, by necessity, it's not limited to artificial human barriers or limitations or institutions. Mm. Some people call it like the tradition behind traditions. Surawadi described it as the spiritual leaven. It would pop up every now and then to give rise organically as a living thing to a tradition, and then it would depart. And it's not limited to east or west. It goes where it's appropriate for it to go based on where it will find those few who are interested in that inheritance and in its perpetuation. Mm. And I think that's what we saw during that time. It's not the case, is it, that just because there's a there's a name on a group and the name matches the thing, a description of what it is you're interested in, it doesn't mean that's what you're going to find there. No. Often it can be a guarantee that you, you'll find the opposite. It's that phenomenon we talked about in, in terms of occultism. You get people talking about the subject in great depth precisely to keep the reality of it away from themselves. Yeah, And then they act as gatekeepers for that thing. And then usually, because it's an institution, there are then <laughs> concerns about the institution itself being perpetuated. And that usually, you know, murders the thing right there. Yeah. For me, the, the people that came to me as students came from all different kinds of traditions. They were looking for something behind the traditions. Yeah. And as a result of the Baptist head stuff, they could identify it and say, ah, there's someone who's following that thread. Maybe I can follow it with them. To get the experience of going to that Buddhist group, that's a different attraction for a different kind of person, yeah. isn't it? I mean, now that you say that, I remember as well investigating Anglicanism. I was oh, thinking yeah. about the kind of Rosicrucian idea that you just practice whatever happens to be the local mm. tradition and do the tradition mm. behind the tradition, but you just wear the clothes of, of wherever you happen to be. I had a spiritual director. I used to go to services on uh, Sunday nights, and but again, no, no, <laughs> it just there just wasn't anything there that I could I could lock yeah. on to. Yeah, I mean, I drifted for quite a while. I think looking for something, and what came back to me in the end was something that had been there from the very beginning, which was psychoanalysis therapy, mm. and I decided to 
go and train. Uh, somebody had told me years and years ago she thought that I could be a, a half-decent therapist if I put my mind to it and hadn't really taken that seriously at the time. And mm. Thinking about the way things are, don't think probably I'm ever going to get to retire. So if I'm going to have to go on working, then being a therapist, I think, is something that you can you can probably get away with until you're quite old. But you've had an interesting journey with counselling, haven't you? Like you, uh, at first blush... Mm. There was a distancing, wasn't there, of uh, this thread from the counselling. And that's changed over time, hasn't it? Yeah, it it has. When I started training, I hid all my magical stuff. I took my blog down. You know, I took my ring off, my magical ring, because that sort of stuff doesn't tend to play well with the the mainstream consensus of the therapeutic community. We're seeing the same things just repeating over and over. Mm. Considering how psychotherapy began, who, who it began with, Right. And then it's like, okay, so what would we expect the majority of those people who make up that community to be like? Yeah. That description I've been using came from young people who talk about the nature of the psyche (laughs) at length, right? So they can be expert, but to keep the reality of the psyche as far away from themselves as possible. What was Jung's colleague called? Um, Pauli. Was it Wolfgang Pauli? Yeah, Wolfgang Pauli. Yeah. The the quantum physicist. Yeah, who described Jungians as expert in murdering their patients' dreams. (laughs) Jung said other things as well that I'm not going to repeat. Won't be acceptable now. But uh, Jung was a tricky character, though, wasn't he? Because mm. of course he did all that stuff of playing the psychological game. Like the, yeah. the problem I always had with Jung was this idea that you could never go further than the archetypes. So mm. in Jungian psychology, there's the self, which is you know the archetype of the divine, and always a sense in Jung that that's as close to the divine as you can get. That's what he said. But that wasn't what he meant. When the Red Book came out, it showed that he'd had those direct experiences, Mm. that he was just talking as a psychologist when he let this idea stand that there weren't realities out there, there were just archetypes of them. You know, there there was just the the psychological expression of them and you couldn't get beyond that. Yeah, I wonder how much of that is a misreading as a result of his students. My sense is it, it was Jung protecting himself because he mm. knew that were he to make the point that he'd had direct experience of these things, then he wouldn't be taken seriously as a psychologist. But you read the Red Book and it's very clear that he did have that direct mm. experience. Well, he talks in the Red Book, doesn't he, about those two voices? Yeah. You know, the spirit of the depths and the spirit of the time. Yeah. And the, the spirit of the times is the you know, progressive scientific uh, voice. Yeah. And then you've got the spirit of the depths. Yeah. And, and he uh, always straddled yeah. the two, didn't he? He, he? he had that conflict going on in him between those two voices. Mm. Yeah. But there's that passage in the Red Book as well where he, he basically, you know, has an awakening experience, has direct experience of, of the divine, and it terrifies him. He's absolutely uh, destroyed by it. Because he knows that I was going no to one... say, which one are you talking about? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's true. more than one. <laughs> there is more than one in there, yeah. There, there is a, a beyond the archetypes in, in Jung. But none of that was clear, I, I think, before the Red Book came out. The publication of the Red Book was one of the reasons why I felt okay to start talking about this stuff again in a kind of therapeutic mm. context, because there it is in mm. Jung. It's interesting that when I look back on my interests over the years... Uh, I I never bothered to read Young mm. until uh, Peter Kingsley wrote mm. Catafalque. Yeah. Um, yeah. Until then, and and um, I I think I can understand why, given how he's presented and how yeah. he's understood. Yeah. Um, and I really do think he was responsible for some of that. He did play that game. Mm. Of... Yeah. But that spirit of the times is exactly the same thing. 
you know, that we've been describing as the substitute for, for what actually mm. matters. Uh, it's like a false light that we can fall in love with that's, that's shone from ourselves. And, uh, and culturally speaking, it's that progressive, always getting better and better, mm. always pushing the boundaries, always transgressing, always adding to and enlarging our uh, scientific knowledge and our capacities. Mm. You know, and the future is always going to be better than the past. And yeah. the entirety of the history of the cosmos has led to us right now. <laughs> Anyway, that's the same thing as, you know, talking about something at length as experts to keep the reality as far away from yourself as possible. You yeah. know? So another way to think about those two voices, you know, the thread is the voice of the deep. And, you know, the banal culture that pretends to represent it uh, is the spirit of the times. And it always represents how we think about ourselves, culturally speaking. An analogy for that is real estate development. <laughs> Kingsley talks about a specific dream. It's that idea of tearing down the wild because the wild is like the spirit of the depths. The wild is, is a place, isn't it, that doesn't belong to anyone, right, but welcomes everyone. And it's somewhere, better watch out, because there's, there's the free expression of, of all the natures that might be found there. Yeah. It brings that out of you, doesn't it? But you could pave that over and, and have some, a nice housing development. And people need somewhere to live. And there's, uh, if you're worried about environmentalism, uh, you know, a nature park that's just down the road. And doesn't it look nice? It is an improvement, isn't it? It's all ni- nice and tidy and it looks neat. And, and we've made some money. And this is progress. <laughs> And I'm thinking about the equivalent of that in counselling, in psychology, where Mm. there's no sense of mystery. There's no Mm. sense that psychology is, as the name suggests, about the human soul. Mm. It's become a science of behaviour. That's what it does. It measures behaviour. There's nothing to do with the mind in psychology, hardly. Mm. compared to what was there with the founders like William James and people like Frederick Myers and, and people like that who are long forgotten now. It's the same thing in therapy as well. It's regarded as a sort of medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's regarded as a kind of technique that can be written down, manualized, And automated. Yeah. Ultimately automated. Yeah. yeah. You know, some of the jobs I've had where I was assessing people for therapy, deciding how many sessions they should have for different kinds of psychological issues like OCD mm. or depression or whatever, as if the therapy is some sort of dose. <laughs> Six sessions is less than 12 sessions or whatever. Mm. It's just crazy. There's no soul in there anymore. Mm. So over time, though, the kinds of people that you found yourself interacting with, mm. the kind of experiences that they're bringing to the table are different from what you'd expect in that medical model if you talk about the wrong things in the wrong place Mm. to the wrong person you're likely to get yourself sectioned but of course people do have souls and you know the spirit of the depth is expressing itself in people's lives in all sorts of ways the only medical register that there is to put those sorts of experiences into is psychosis Mm. So I found myself starting to work with people who maybe find themselves able to talk about certain sorts of experiences for the first time. Mm. Well, I remember you saying to me that maybe you thought the frequency with with which you're encountering people describing what we would call magical or spiritual experiences who feel comfortable talking to you about Mm. these things, perhaps where they've never spoken to anyone else before about them, that maybe this was an indication of a growing number of people having these experiences. Mm. I remember you saying that. I do get um, that sense. But I was I was wondering, though, do, do you think that maybe an alternative explanation might be what I talked about in terms of a light in the darkness? That you may be getting more of these people precisely because something in them is recognising something in you. Mm. And that something else living or intelligent or that has its own wisdom behind the scenes is what's drawing you together. Yeah, and that's a known phenomenon as well. 
Mm-hmm. So I've heard a lot of these stories from therapists. They've had some sort of thing happen to them, some sort of experience. Mm. And suddenly they start attracting clients who are going through something similar. It happens all the time. It's really strange. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's something in, in that too. Mm. I mean, the reason for thinking, is it some sort of cultural thing, is just because of all the upheaval that we're going through at the moment. I think people are being driven to a breaking point and when that happens, the spirit of the depths starts to emerge because the spirit of the times isn't cutting it anymore. Mm, the last decade. Yeah. There were some parallels in the idea of, of uh, tending a garden. This is language from, from a description of a particular grade in Crawley's system mm. called the mas- Master of the Temple, <laughs> where the idea is is that you, you're like someone who has a garden and you're going to cultivate what's there to produce fruit, particular kind of fruit. And this is an analogy for understanding the development of people in that lineage that are coming after you. Mm. Those who are not as far along the path as you might be, but they see your light and they follow you. That's mm. another way of you know putting it. But it's curious that that's a description, you know, of what what you would expect to happen at a particular degree of realization is that there would be an attraction of others. Mm-hmm. Right, and that you get to participate in the the cultivation of those to a certain extent. Yeah. I find that that's an interesting parallel, isn't it? That that seems yeah. to happen to both of us, but in different ways. In different ways, yeah. Because mm. you know, maybe you're doing that more directly than I am. You, mm. your students are coming to you for explicitly spiritual guidance for awakening, and for me, it's whoever. <laughs> Whoever's in need of some help, it's not necessarily about awakening. Mm. The particular kind of experiences Mm. that we might say are more magical or spiritual, what kind of therapeutic help can you provide for those people? Mm. I I guess, let me be clear about that. So if someone comes to you and they say, I've got anxiety, there's a certain approach to that, isn't there? There Uh, is. Or or depression or something like that. Yeah. Um, Is there any difference if someone has what we might call spiritual or magical experiences yeah so i think some of it's about depathologizing so Mm. people will be having spiritual experiences but experiencing that as something wrong something bad yeah i think there's also something about spiritual bypassing as well Mm. where people feel as if their practice is failing you know they ought to be in certain states of mind all the time where really the work is in the pain and the suffering from everyday life the other thing is, because I'm a therapist, I'm bound by certain ethical frameworks. Mm. And the thing about the magical path, the spiritual part, is it's not free of harm. Mm. You are more or less guaranteed to have your mental health challenged and to have destabilizing experiences. So can't recommend to people that they do those things. Mm. Which is curious, isn't it? Because in the most basic sense, you're going to talk with a therapist about difficult details. Yeah. I'm wondering by what metric you would measure the harm. Yeah. How do you measure harm? You can't, can you? There is no measure for harm. What if the principle of cause no harm causes harm? Perhaps a more practical way of looking at it is uh, mm. trying to avoid complaints. I would say that the uh, yeah the difference between what I do with students and therapy is that they move in a different direction. Mm. Some percentage of this is actually just it's just a pretense that's put in place with therapy, mm-hmm. where some of what I'm going to say I think is just inescapable, or rather it's actually true, but we have to pretend otherwise to give the appearance of safety. 
responsibility for understanding yourself and your own nature can only lie with the individual literally can't be taken up by anyone else and furthermore you bring to the table as a either a student or a client false and challenging ideas and experiences that you think define you in some way Mm. right that you can't escape from and the truth of the matter is you don't suffer from the burden of that drama in the way that you think you do uh-huh. And the process of, of magical practice is to discover liberation from that by correcting the false conclusion that gives rise to that false yeah. identity, right? So you could say that you're enacting and playing out in your life something that you could call a sickness. But if we just hold off on believing the appearance long enough that we can do the practices, it turns out you discover you were never sick in the first place. Mm. Right? And, and that, that's the healing. It's not because the problem's actually been dealt with. Yeah, It's because you discover you were never sick in the first place. As you said to me, the... Uh, one way of understanding the word therapy is to go along with. Yeah. That's what it originally meant in Greek. Yeah, to accompany, so you, to go along with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You could take that in, in two different ways, couldn't you? You could take it as walking through hell, sometimes through heaven with that person, mm. or to go along with the false appearance that they've fallen for, mm. right? If, they, if they're unable to see outside of it, you can, go, you, can, you can indulge it or go along with it until it's possible to find a way around it or something like that. Yeah. What would you say? What's coming to mind when... Mm. You were talking about going through heaven and hell. The image I was getting was Virgil and Dante. Mm. You know, yeah. Virgil escorting Dante through Inferno and Purgatorio and Paradiso. And I remember you saying mm. that in what you do as a spiritual mm. teacher, you know, the role you're performing is analogous to the divine. Well, in one way, it's as being an advocate for that person. And, and that means refusing to relate to the person as less than they are, yeah. which is what all of our pretenses are. It's a way of thinking we're less than we are. The playing out of the drama between the, the teacher and the student is the playing out of the relationship the student has with their own divine self. Yeah, It affords an opportunity to put before the student uh, that understanding that they have, which might otherwise remain unconscious. Yeah. And therefore, you can travel through that drama together, you know, in a way that perhaps you couldn't. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just working, just working on your own. Yeah. No, I don't. With a dead teacher. Yeah, I have yeah. no problem with that whatsoever. I get that. And what's just come to mind is Dante actually has two guides. He has Virgil, but also Beatrice. Virgil leads Dante through hell and purgatory, but Virgil, because uh, he's a pagan, he can't go into paradise. <laughs> And uh, Beatrice, Beatrice has to pick up the baton, mm. and she is literally the representative of the divine. Beatrice is mm. is his true love. She's the beloved. So you know, maybe there's something there about to go into those higher realms. You need a different sort of guide. A lot of the work of therapy is Inferno and Purgatorio. Or you can think of it in the way that I was describing candidates. Mm. So we approach the truth of the nature of things by degrees. Most people can get their head around, oh, I'll do a practice and it will bring about a certain kind of experience. But these are only just techniques and maybe the experiences. Who can say what they really are? We don't have to, we don't have to deal with that right now. You know, we can even think about it in terms of the brain or something like that. They could think of a teacher as just someone who has some more experience and they can teach me the techniques mm-hmm. and maybe offer some advice. And that's what a teacher is. There's no fundamental difference. You know, there's nothing else going on. Most people can approach that because that's how we think about teachers in our culture don't we yeah right but as the the process unfolds right as delusions drop away as uh the truth comes into focus what you're aimed at isn't some state of mind or some kind of neutral interesting spiritual insight or interesting brain state or or a sense of just personal freedom 
that will help you be a better person in the world it comes into focus and what you'll start to discover is that actually there's a depth there's there's something beyond that image if that's you think about this this is the profoundest conception most people can have about who and what they are they're a brain that's capable of weird brain states that we don't quite understand something like that right uh we we're all equals and that um some people just know some techniques maybe can give advice right and but we're going to do it on our own aren't we like it's our effort that will make it happen there's something over the horizon of that image but they don't know what that is yet now as the process continues to unfold that image will drop away and be replaced by something more profound the the further you go the more miraculous and astounding it becomes but the more challenging it will be to your position of, of holding on to certain cultural beliefs you'll have to let some of them go mm. now some people don't so they stop they only go so far and then they won't go any further because it's too good to be true it just <laughs> it gets too good to be true um so it, it might make sense that, you know, first of all, it's like your guide is just like a fellow traveler. Yeah. He's just, I can tell you some, you know, give you some hints and tips, some hacks, some life hacks. Yeah. Practical Dharma life hacks, something like that. Some tools. Yes. <laughs> but in the end, you're going to discover that that person is none other than, than you, mm. your divine self. And the divine self is the beloved. Mm. Now we get into territory that people... <laughs> That it, that it seems like we're not capable of having an adult conversation about. So, have we got the band back together? Is this going to be regular? Could be. Let's see what it sounds like when we've edited it together. Listen, what are we going to call it? Barbarous Words. Did we agree that? We did. Another candidate was Warp FM. Warp FM? With an O. W-O-R-P-F-M. Now, I sent you an attachment, which was a photograph of a page from a Philip K. Dick book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the divine invasion? Yeah. Right, so I was told to read that in a dream. So I read it, and then there's a bit in there, and I can't believe I didn't see this in there. I mean, it's an extremely sophisticated cosmology. Yeah. It's got so much stuff in it from every different side, it's unbelievable. It's like they've entered the new aeon, this new period of time, and it's like, right, we'll set up a radio station, we'll do our broadcasts, and we'll call it Warp FM. Anyway, that was just a thought. We don't have to call it that, because people will be like, what does that mean? Sounds good. I don't think I've read that one before. Have you not? No. Oh, well. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot in there. Yeah. <laughs>